0: In the late 1800s, William Coley began injecting cancer patients with Streptococcus bacteria in the hope that the bacteria would help the patients kill their tumors.
1: Sounds crazy, right? But some patients did control their cancer, and Coley suggested that this was because of a general immune response triggered by the bacteria.
0: Remember Streptococcus. Not the tumors themselves. Coley's work was highly controversial at the time, and his scientific papers were met with an avalanche of skepticism. But today, his contributions to cancer research are well known, and modern researchers continue to explore his ideas as the basis for fighting a wide range of diseases.
1: Including SARS-CoV-2. In the midst of the past year's race to develop vaccines to fight the COVID-19 pandemic, a small group of scientists proposed a very similar idea.
0: One of their papers, titled Old Vaccines for New Infections, came out in PNAS last month. In it, the scientists suggested using live microbes to prime the innate immune system so that should it encounter the virus that causes COVID-19, a person would be better protected.
1: But wait, isn't that what vaccines already do? They educate our immune systems about bad guys before we run into the real bad guys themselves.
0: Not quite. The key difference is that the authors of the PNAS article emphasized the effects of vaccines on the innate immune response, not the adaptive one. The adaptive immune system makes the antibodies that we usually think about and measure when we're trying to assess whether a vaccine will protect us. Here's a quick overview.
1: Adaptive immunity happens when our bodies recognize part of a new invader and then mount a specific response to that part. This response is mediated by B and T cells, some of which, by chance, have receptors that recognize parts of a pathogen. When those cells detect those parts, and with a little help from other parts of the immune system, those particular B and T cells replicate like mad, giving rise to an army capable of detecting and responding to that one particular bad guy.
0: This process happens most every time a new pathogen gets a foothold in our body, or when you get a vaccine for some disease. Catch measles, your adaptive immune system learns. Hopefully. To fight it. Get a measles vaccine and train your adaptive immune system to fight it before you meet the measles virus in the wild.
1: But there's a big catch to adaptive immunity. It takes time for it to become protective.
0: Like a week or two. And that's why you're not considered to have full-strength immunity to COVID until well after your first vaccine. But of course, we
1: don't always have that kind of time. Viruses and bacteria can replicate billions, if not trillions of times in two weeks. So for most infections, we need a much more rapid response. An immune SWAT team, if you will, to deal with the bad guys as soon as we discover them.
0: And that's what our innate immune response does. The world teems with potential pathogens, and thousands of species of microbes get on and into us every day. Best not to wait around for adaptive immunity. Best to use biological barricades, hand grenades, and flamethrowers while the sharpshooters and guided missile operators are getting their armaments ready. Some defense is better than nothing, even if collateral damage is likely.
1: In fact, most of life on Earth has always gone without adaptive immunity or anything like it. If most species haven't needed adaptive immunity over their evolutionary histories, maybe there's more to innate immunity than we've understood.
0: It turns out that the innate immune system can simply be turned up if it recently came into contact with particular pathogens. Some new bugs, especially live ones, seem to get our innate immune systems into a state of heightened alert, which can help us respond more effectively to an altogether very different pathogen than the one that pissed it off in the first place. This effect may explain William Coley's success in fighting cancers by injecting streptococcus. The
1: show today focuses on the promise of live attenuated vaccines, or LAVs, in the control of diseases like covid LAVs contain live but weakened pathogens. They cause an immune system reaction much more like a natural infection than do dead vaccines or than do vaccines that use just parts of pathogens. Some well-known LAVs are the measles, mumps, and rubella or MMR vaccine, the chickenpox vaccine, and the oral polio vaccine.
0: Our guests today, Drs. Konstantin Chumakov and Robert Gallo, suggest that stimulating our innate immune systems with LAVs will provide at least partial protection from diseases like COVID-19 giving us time to develop more refined tools like the vaccines we're using today.
1: Konstantin Chumakov is a director within the Global Virus Network, based at the FDA Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. His team has been working closely with Robert Gallows since the beginning of the pandemic to promote the use of live attenuated vaccines to control COVID.
2: When these systems are impaired, people get more severe diseases. So that's why if um, uh, when people get infected with covid we uh, stimulate immune response, innate immune response by something else, such as MMR or polio vaccine or BCG. We basically complement this defect that is induced by coronavirus and shift this um, equilibrium towards health rather than getting a more mm-hmm. severe disease.
0: Robert Gallo is a biomedical researcher who co-founded the Institute of Human Virology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, as well as the Global Virus Network, an international coalition of virologists. He's most well known as the co-discoverer of HIV as the virus that causes AIDS.
3: I didn't expect the antibodies to last with these vaccines against the spike. They lasted are lasting longer than I ever thought. I thought it would be five or six months. From the nature of the structure of the protein. And so I was thinking these guys are going to go out of existence in five months, just like the seasonal coronaviruses do.
1: In this episode, we talked to Chumakov and Gallo about using LAVs to bolster innate immunity as a stopgap measure against novel pathogens. It's a fresh and exciting take on immunization and one that could have major significance for COVID-19 and could help us prepare for future pandemics.
0: As we struggle to produce and distribute COVID-19 vaccines across the world and new variants continue to spread. Innovative and cheap technologies like LAVs could provide partial protection to entire regions of the globe as they wait for access to SARS-CoV-2 specific vaccines. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And you're listening to Big Biology. Well, let's, let's jump into it and make sure we save plenty of time about the um, the PNAS paper that, that you and several colleagues had out last week that was entitled uh, Old Vaccines for New Infections. There's no way to talk about this paper, I think, without doing some immunology. But, but can I ask you, Constantine, to lay out how the immune system typically responds to a vaccine, knowing that there's a lot of diversity because there's a lot of vaccines out there, largely they're about inducing protection through adaptive immunity. And I think we want to take that route because your advocacy is about thinking about the innate immune system. So can you tell us about the roles of the adaptive immune system, the B cells and the T cells, and what they do to confer protection?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, when people talk about vaccines, I think that 99.9% of them, they mean adaptive immune response. Uh, And perhaps more people uh, mean uh, uh, antibodies. B-cellular immune response and uh, there is a good reason for this our body can uh, develop uh, molecules that recognize the pathogen and it's, ju- it's just I mean one of the miracles of nature uh, so that's why uh, the more simple or more ancient uh, protective system innate immune um, response is kind of is lost in the shadows uh, so of course uh, we respond uh, to uh, new pathogens primarily by innate immune response Uh, adaptive immune response is very uh, useful uh, when you encounter the pathogen for the second time around or third time because it takes time for our body to learn how to produce antibodies and how to train T cells uh, to recognize uh, pathogens uh, but we have to survive uh, for the first few days or a couple of weeks before uh, before this uh, adaptive immune response uh, kicks in. So uh, the reason we survive the first few days uh, of infection and we recover, you know, just without even uh, antibodies uh, from most of them uh, by um, activating immune response um, of this innate nature which includes some cellular components and uh, humoral components, such as interferon. So this is something that is often overlooked. And when uh, people uh, develop vaccines, they primarily, if not exclusively, target uh, this adaptive component because they want to develop something that would give you a lifetime protection against the pathogen. And uh, they consider innate immune uh, component as a kind of auxiliary, because, of course, adaptive immune response cannot happen without getting innate immune response involved. I mean, this innate um, uh, mechanisms, they are an uh, essential part of the adaptive immune response that would lead to antibodies and T-cells. But when the vaccine is already made, produced, licensed, nobody thinks, most people don't think about them as inducers of innate immune response. They only think that vaccines are good against the pathogen that they're made against. But uh, many years ago, uh, people started noticing that mm, uh, vaccines produce uh, by far more uh, broad uh, beneficial effect against uh, non-target pathogens. Mm the first time was discovered uh, with um, BCG, Bacillus calmedgeran, the vaccine against tuberculosis. And when uh, in some countries in the 40s, uh, maybe even 30s, they started using um, mass uh, vaccination with BCG, they have noticed that uh, the incidence of other diseases dropped precipitously. And it was kind of curious because it was not that TB was gone, but many other diseases were also suppressed quite significantly. In the 1950s, when uh, Albert Sabin was developing his oral polio vaccine, uh, it's a live vaccine against poliomyelitis, there were also observations that some viruses that would normally uh, circulate in a population would be completely wiped out. By um, you know synchronous um, vaccination with oral polio vaccine.
1: So, so what you're saying is that there's this sort of non-specific effects here. You're giving a vaccine for one thing, and then it's having effects on pathogens of another type that were not an intended target of that of that vaccine,
2: right? This is exactly uh, the case, yeah, yeah. And it was um, uh, confirmed uh, practically almost for all live vaccines that were tested for this. It is true for BCG, oral polio vaccine, uh, mumps, uh, mumps, measles and rubella, and in general uh, measles-containing vaccines, Uh, similar effects um, are observed with the smallpox vaccine. Uh, and yellow fever vaccine. Uh, Some experiments uh, in animals demonstrate that live influenza vaccines also have protective effects against uh, viruses such as uh, respiratory syncytial virus.
1: In in this PNAS paper, you're applying this idea to the COVID pandemic and we want to dig into a bunch of the details of, of that but just just quickly before we do, I want to talk briefly about this race to make a vaccine for COVID, right? So there's a bunch of different companies that have developed vaccines, and many of them seem now to be very effective. Do they all do essentially the same thing? And do they induce the same kind of reaction in, in the body?
2: Well, uh, I think that uh, practically all vaccines, and there were Uh, more than 300 different uh, projects uh, on uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine.
1: No, 300. I didn't know it was that much. Mm -hmm.
2: So they were all targeting uh, S-protein, spike protein, because it was known from uh, other coronaviruses that um, uh, antibodies to spike protein can protect. So that's why it was a kind of natural target. Uh, Mm -hmm. But of Mm -hmm. course, uh, it was just one mechanism. As uh, some, um, uh, some groups uh, were thinking that they need antibodies, uh, others trying tried to elicit T-cell response, and there are merits in both uh, approaches. But at the end of the day, uh, vaccines that actually um, uh, were licensed, not licensed, but you know, are being used right now under emergency use authorization such as RNA, mRNA vaccines and Uh, vaccines based on um, adenovirus vectors, they elicit both. In fact, they, uh, you know, mRNA vaccines, turned out that they not only generate very high levels of um, antibodies, but also they activate T-cellular
3: component. There's really not enough clinical data and clinical trials, but clearly the messenger RNA vaccines are working far better than anybody would have expected and are fantastic vaccine. I didn't expect the antibodies to last with these vaccines against the spike. And I was right and wrong. They lasted are lasting longer than I ever thought. I thought it would be five or six months. From the nature of the structure of the protein, and my colleague George Lewis and I and another Tony DeVico have been working on that concept that these antibodies all through are all short-lived when they have a lot of sugar molecules on the, the protein that you, that induces the antibodies induce it in B cells that when they have that sugar molecules, that certain B cells that don't mature properly into the fully mature plasma cells that makes our antibodies. And so I was thinking these guys are going to go out of existence in five months, just like the seasonal coronaviruses do five, six months. So they're going to be over and over, but they're mm-hmm. lasting maybe a year. They're not going to, I don't think they'll last longer than a year, maybe 10 months, 11 months, which is longer than I thought. And they can boost. And maybe we get, we really get rid of the pandemic if we can get this distributed throughout the world. And,
1: and the mRNA vaccines—that's I've heard a lot about those. But um, are those mRNAs for the spike proteins? Yes. Okay. And and are there other target, other protein targets that teams? have looked at or should be looking at? Or is the spike protein is the obvious one?
2: Uh, well, it is the obvious one. Uh, I, I know that there is one vaccine that uh, is, uh, they are trying to target a uh, matrix protein as well. So it's more than one. And of course, uh, vaccines made from uh, whole virions, uh, like inactivated vaccines made from from the virus grown in cell culture, they also contain the whole you know, range of uh, viral proteins.
0: What's going on with the innate immune system with the different COVID vaccines? I think that, that's going to be key to the broader conversation where we want to go. Is there any um, atypical relative to most of the vaccines we've used in the past? Are there atypical effects on the innate immune system for the different COVID vaccine varieties that are in use now?
2: I'm not aware of anybody looking at this carefully because I think that uh, people are mostly interested in protective effects and they are attributed to uh, to, um, antibodies and T-cells. I'm not aware of anybody looking at the ability of these vaccines to induce innate immune response, only perhaps uh, as a part of the um, process of uh, adaptive immune response as a kind of Mm -hmm. auxiliary function of innate immune response to uh, basically facilitate generation of antibodies.
0: Um, just briefly, um, you mentioned T-cells groups starting to look at the protective effects of vaccines on T-cells. I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's it's off a little bit different than the live attenuated vaccine idea that, that you wrote about in the PNAS paper. But what's the current status of T-cell-induced protection with the uh, most commonly used vaccines in the US?
2: Well, I mean, uh, there were recently a few papers demonstrating that mRNA vaccine uh, vaccines, they induce uh, a very good um, T-cell response. And what's important about this is that uh, it is believed that uh, T-cell immune response is broader than antibody immune response. Meaning that um, uh, these variant strains that have emerged in different parts of the world, such as South African and Brazilian and Indian strain, um, uh, they uh, have antigenic structure that is altered and antibodies induced by the original virus and the vaccines that were made made based on the sequence of the original virus they uh, neutralized uh, the variants uh, at a lower uh, to a lower extent so in some cases uh, significantly lower 10 or more fold lower and uh, in clinical studies for instance in south africa it was found that AstraZeneca vaccine, which is made based on the shemp adenovirus, does not protect at all. Uh, while um, mRNA vaccines, they, still, they do protect against uh, uh, these variant strains, and one of the explanations, maybe it's not the only reason, is that uh, they induce uh, T-cellular immune response, because T-cellular epitopes are different from these cell epitopes and, and, and even last year, early last year, it was found that seasonal coronaviruses that normally uh, cause a common cold in humans, uh, they have some uh, antigenic crossover with SARS-CoV-2 in terms of T cell mm-hmm. epitopes. There were even speculations that people who had coronavirus, you know, before common cold coronavirus may be partially protected against. I mean, there is no proof of this, but potentially it is possible that there may be some crossover. Right.
0: Okay. And just really quickly, epitope is that portion of the protein that the immune system is seeing. Okay, great.
1: Well, let's let's turn back to the kind of central ideas of the papers. And, and Bob, maybe this question could be directed to you. Um, your central argument, if I can articulate it, is that um, you're proposing that we use live attenuated vaccines to stimulate the innate immune system and that that, that can prime the innate immune system to, to be ready for SARS-CoV-2. Um, so is that, is that a reasonable statement of, of your proposal? And, um, you, you know, in terms of effectiveness overall compared to vaccines directed at the adaptive immune system, um, how, how good is this, this system?
3: Innate immunity is it's instantaneous almost. You're ready to go. Right away. Mm-hmm. So you take MMR and the same day you're going to start getting protection. Probably very likely. You're going to induce mm-hmm. interferon right away in natural killer cells and other things we don't even fully understand. Innate immune system is Constantine said this, but I think I brought it into the paper because it was to outsider. He was an insider on this. And coming in new on it, uh, the first thing I thought of is holy crow, I'm learning that 95% of all creatures only have innate immunity. And so 5% adapted the adaptive immune system as well. i was also thinking because of bats. I was reading about bats and bats are containing it by innate immunity. Low level, low level. So you don't get inflammation constitutively expressed. So I'm thinking about all these things and they, you know, they start thinking about it like the barbarians at the gates, right? The first round of protection is innate immunity. Occasionally something slips through and you have the adaptive immunity to clean it up.
2: Hmm. Like many other viruses, coronavirus has a special uh, proteins uh, that interfere with innate immune activation. So there Hmm. are um, proteins inside um, coronavirus genome that block interferon signaling pathways. Uh, basically preventing uh, our body to mount innate immune response. And uh, it, it's it came out from the studies of the virus, and it also was confirmed by looking at the genetic uh, background of those people who had severe COVID. Mm-hmm. Because the only genes that correlate with the severe disease are those that are involved in innate immune signaling, meaning that when these systems are impaired, people get more severe disease. So that's why if, um, uh, when people get infected with COVID, we uh, stimulate immune immune response, innate immune response by something else, such as MMR or polio vaccine or BCG, we basically complement this defect that is induced by coronavirus and shift this um, equilibrium towards health rather than getting a more Mm -hmm. severe disease. That was a very additional
3: reason that attracted me that I forgot to mention. As Constantine knows, one of the things I was recognized with the genome analysis of this early on, very early on, was that it had a, you know, viruses don't have much genetic information in general and they don't like to waste it. It had, it had used a lot of its genetic information for trying to avoid innate immunity, but that's true of a lot of viruses. But I think this guy is more so, I mean, he's really worked on trying to avoid innate immunity uh, and if it's there ahead of time, you realize he must know that he's very susceptible to innate immunity if it's there properly. So he's worked out ways to try to do something about it. But if it's there in his face, right on day one, this made sense. That was the thinking that that started us talking and talking and talking and then finding others that are already involved. A constant and I were very much drawn towards the opv jesus very cheap you know 15 cents a pill or two drops of like a sugar on your tongue it was so simple you have to go back to your childhood if you had it. and we start thinking of the, this is the obvious one
1: this this seems like such a great idea and you know the advantages are that we have a lot of these vaccines already available they're cheap to produce presumably they could be distributed broadly in not too much time so, so why, why didn't we use them this way for the coronavirus pandemic?
3: It doesn't get funding, very little. I think part of it, we were certainly promoting with a grant attempt, the OPV. There were certainly people against that because of fear that we felt was misplaced. They didn't see the total statistics. But then it's not really politics, but it's science policy problems of understanding in the population. And third, it was, I think, I I have to say, I think it was also lack of knowledge.
2: I can think about uh, another reason why it has not been used, because I think uh, these vaccines, as Bob already mentioned, they're very inexpensive and very uh, accessible. You know, 15 cents a dose for oral polio vaccine. Nothing can come close. And it's an existing vaccine, and uh, basically you can get no credit for creating a new vaccine because when you uh, when it's a pandemic of course most scientists rush uh, to develop and uh, want there's to be no, the first
1: there's no glory in using an old vaccine
2: huh? and it's not yeah. as cool as uh, creating your own yeah. one mm-hmm. but, but i think yeah. it is critical i mean m- maybe it's not critical for the developed countries such as united states and europe but for developing world it's a godsend because yeah. it's been uh, our, our co-authors on this paper in pnas They've demonstrated that countries that use OPV uh, after the campaign, uh, all cause mortality among children drops thirty percent. No, it's amazing. Uh, even in the absence of polio, so you give polio vaccine, there is no polio, but overall mortality against other diseases caused by even bacterial pathogens drop hmm. precipitously. So right. I, I mean, enormous uh, number of uh, children in developing countries. Don't die just because uh, these vaccines are being used. So uh, uh, using them for this pandemic, uh, uh, we thought, I mean, uh, for, for me, it was a big shock that we basically hit the wall because mm-hmm. it's a, sort of a no-brainer. So when, when, when you get exposed to coronavirus, while well, you incubate it. Why don't you just take the vaccine and you protect? I mean, maybe not 100%, but even if you protect 50% of those who are already infected.
1: Victory.
0: So let me try to package things together to, to set up this question. The idea is we take these live attenuated viruses that are not for COVID or even for the next type of COVID that's going to come we use them to piss off the immune system such that when it sees something that isn't whatever the live attenuated vaccine is be it MMR or polio or whatever it might be it's primed in a way to 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 mount a kind of defense for some period of time so so what is it in the context of you know the evidence you you guys point to some evidence that uh, other vaccines are protective about covid do we know anything about the pieces of the innate immune system that are protective?
3: Interferin is immediately induced. Interferin is a powerful antiviral agent, but if Mm -hmm. you have too much of it, you can get inflammation. You don't want Mm -hmm. to get the disease. Right. And natural killer cells, NK cells. That's part of innate immunity. Mm -hmm. And X and Y and Z, we know there's
0: more. And this thing about the the, the how long it lasts, I mean, that's some of the surprises because the typical C- conviction about the innate immune system is that it's a great barrier. It's induced, it ramps up, and then it's sort of it's gone quickly. Do we have any ideas about mechanisms that are causing longer-term protection? Because in some of the studies, Constantine, that, that you've talked about in the other papers, there's these incredibly long-lasting effects, right?
3: I think the person to talk really about that who has the most data on earth seems to be uh, uh, Dr. Netea in Holland. who comes from Romania, Mihai Netea. The analogy he uses, it has to do with the modification of the, of the histones that repress or activate genes. And the way he proposes it is, think for, he said, for a lay person, think if you're reading a book, you open the book and you're at a certain page, but you put a bookmark there. So it opens up quicker to where you want to be at. So these things, these tags or lack of tag or every the modification, the epigenetic modification that occurs is there. So, and it just... Makes it last longer. That's his interpretation. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. He says it's out to five months. I was shocked. I mean, I, I was thinking two weeks, three weeks. And Constantine, you know, we still maybe maybe we'll get two months. I think Constantine, you you were thinking less. You know, maybe we better say a few weeks because we didn't
2: know. Yeah, we, we were mostly <laughs> thinking that interferon is the main mechanism for protection, and of course, interferon is induced, and this wave uh, elevated levels they last for a couple of weeks, and then they go away. But we have no idea whether the same trained innate immunity uh, phenomenon uh, is um, involved in um, other vaccines, because Mihai Nitea He uh, basically um, done a very good job in um, elucidating all this for BCG. He says the fact that you get the the two weeks from interferon, but he thinks you still get the
3: interferon because the marker is there and it comes out very rapidly. We don't know if that's true. He hasn't proven that even with BCG, I don't think, the mechanism for the five months. I'm not sure about that. I'd have to recheck, but I don't think he's proved mechanism when it's out to five months. But basically... uh, Constantine is right. I mean, if you if you didn't have his claim, his data, you'd say, well, interferon lasts a few weeks, though, so it must be about only a few weeks. Well,
1: let me, let me jump in here and and circle back to um, something we talked about a few minutes ago uh, and invoke economic mechanisms. So. Bob, you mentioned uh, historic lack of funding for work on innate immunity, and Constantine, you mentioned lack lack of glory for using old vaccines. Um, so, so how big of a role does just the lack of money to be made uh, by by reusing old vaccines? How much does that inhibit their use in in these pandemics? Uh, is is there strong economic disincentives to to taking an an approach like this?
2: I mean, of course, uh, uh, this is, I think, uh, this approach is tailor-made for public health institutions and organizations, because of course, you cannot make much money uh, selling old vaccines. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, uh, we must be prepared for new outbreaks, new pandemics. Yeah, of course. And if somebody uh, thinks about what is the preparedness, how do we prepare for something that we do not know? We cannot make vaccines ahead of time. We don't even know what the next pandemic would be. But if you have this phenomenon uh, that allows us to um, uh, uh, basically... uh, reuse the vaccines for other indications, you create a stockpile. And as soon as something happens, you are ready to go on day one. You, 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 you can actually break the back of the pandemic uh, before it, even, if it becomes a global problem. So I think that this is kind of, again, to me, it's sort of a no-brainer. This is the only broadly specific preventive tool that we have. But but a lot of people tell us, well, it's unproven, you you cite some old studies, all the circumstantial, it's observational studies, there's no prospective studies, uh, why don't you do it? Just do it. It's so easy <laughs> with, with vaccines like this. You need a little few dollars. You need somebody to support the truck. <laughs> it probably would cost 0.1% of all the money that was spent on developing vaccines against coronavirus.
0: So COVID has no doubt been you know, an absolute scourge. But as an ecologist, I worry that this is not as bad as it potentially could be. So how are you thinking, or let me phrase the question differently, for the next one that will come, How should we start, besides the stockpiling we've talked about, how should we start to prepare with LAVs and otherwise?
3: I think it should be pulled out of the hands of governments. I don't mean government is out completely. They have to fund it. They have to make oversight. They have to make really final judgments in some cases, I'm sure. But to drive the science should require something different, the best that we can get. I feel... We have that in the global virus network A network has 68 centers of excellence throughout the world. And I think scientists should drive it. And you, we have task force on Zika, task force on, on HTLV-1, the first retrovirus, task force on HIV, the next big retrovirus. We have these task forces. Well, there would, there would have been a huge one on COVID, right? Of the best of the best you could get. I think you have to have government involvement, but it should have a strong, major science leadership internationally. And GVN was talking to China and Russia while the pandemic was in its infancy, before governments were involved. So we were already getting information. So I think the Global Virus Network in cooperation with other private organizations linked together in some way with interaction with WHO, which has to be there, is a a way. How to work that all out you know, I'm not the, the person, I don't, I, you know, I don't know how to put it all together, but it's got to have more science base. After that, greater local public health, which I think was better when I was a child than it is now, and greater emphasis on it, and, and, and somehow injecting all humanity, memory, not to forget. Mm-hmm. My view is in every single pandemic I've read about, and I experienced it with HIV, um, after a generation and a half or so, about 30 years, people forget no matter what. Okay. And do you know something? Even now, many people are giving lectures that are saying what were the great epidemics and pandemics and the HIV is not even mentioned. I'm telling you, I've heard at least three of them in the last two months. Okay. Interrupt somebody and say, you know, and they were thinking I was doing it because of me, you know, you know, uh, Did you think about HIV? Oh, Bob, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. I apologize. You know, pat me on the head. I apologize. (laughs) No, go away.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great. I think this might be a good place to stop. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Um, Really enjoyed this super stimulating paper of yours and getting to talk it over.
0: Yeah, we appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Take care.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. To support the show, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org.
0: Patrons that make monthly donations on Patreon also get access to awesome perks, like video recordings and early access to our Meet the Scientist interviews, where guests talk about their scientific heroes and non-scientific hobbies.
1: And don't forget your teeny weeny summer homework assignment. Tell a friend about us, mention us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or give us a review on Apple Podcasts. As a nonprofit, we rely on your help to spread the word.
0: On our next episode, and the last one of the season, we'll be talking to Avalon Owens, an entomologist at Tufts University who studies the impact of light pollution on fireflies and other insects.
2: Insects use light in their environment, all animals do, to time their development, you know, seasonally and over the course of their entire life. And for all of evolutionary history, these signals in the environment have been entirely constant. You know, the moon waxes and wanes, and, and the seasons change very predictably, even more predictably than the climate, right? So we have all of these concerns about how climate change might be messing with the timing. Um, light pollution is changing the other half of the equation, the light cues that insects use to develop.
1: Thanks to Ruth Demery for producing this episode. Jordan Greer, Ajinkya Dahaki, and Dana Baxter manage our social media channels and help produce the podcast. As always, Steve Lane manages the website.
0: Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Scientists at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support.
1: Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.